Colossians chapter 4, and um, as you are turning there, often uh, one of the things I repeat with uh, our youth students on Wednesday nights uh, is that uh, every, every worldview, every way of looking at uh, the life that we live and the world around us has to answer four basic questions. Uh, they have to answer where we came from, how did we get here? And kind of what accompanies that is a why we are here. Uh, additionally, every worldview will try and answer what's wrong. <laughs> well, what's wrong with the world that we live in? And everybody usually agrees that there is something wrong. Things are not as they should be. So how did we get here? What has gone wrong? And then if everybody says that there is something wrong, then everybody also is going to provide some kind of a solution. So here, here's the problem. This is how that problem is solved. Every worldview will provide some kind of an answer to what has gone wrong with our world. And then the fourth and final thing that every worldview will try and answer is where is history going? Where are we headed? Uh, those, those are the, the four basic questions uh, and that every worldview will try and answer. And uh, it's, it's amazing to see instances where, where secular atheists agree with us that, hey, something is not right. I, I came across uh, an article uh, in The Guardian by uh, George Monbiot. It was written in October of 2016, and uh, the article is entitled, entitled, Neoliberalism is Creating Loneliness. That's what's wrenching society apart. Uh, and the subheading says, Epidemics of mental illness are crushing the minds and bodies of millions. And it's time to ask where we are heading and why. Now, this, this author that I'm going to quote from this article, he, he writes from a, from a secular and evolutionary perspective and coming from a, from a psychological background. And we're not going to agree with everything that he says, but it's amazing to see uh, how he is diagnosing that, hey, something is wrong. Now, listen to what he says. He says, what greater indictment of a system could there be than an epidemic of mental illness? Plagues of anxiety, stress, depression, social phobia, eating disorders, self-harm, and loneliness now strike people all over the world. The latest catastrophic figures for children's mental health in England reflect a global crisis. There are plenty of secondary reasons for this distress, he continues, but it seems to me that the underlying cause is everywhere the same. Human beings... And again, these are his words. He says, the ultra-social mammals whose brains are wired to respond to other people are being peeled apart. Economic and technological change may play a major role, but so does ideology. Though our well-being is inextricably linked to the lives of others, everywhere we are told that we will prosper through competitive self-interest and extreme individualism. He says, consumerism fills the social void, but far from curing the disease of isolation, it intensifies social comparison to the point at which, having consumed all else, we start to prey upon ourselves. Social media brings us together and drives us apart, allowing us precisely to quantify our social standing and to see that other people have more friends and followers than we do. And he continues, and he cites all of these examples, and he concludes the articles with these two paragraphs. He says, anyone can see that something far more important than most of the issues we fret about has gone wrong. So why are we engaging in this world-eating, self-consuming frenzy of environmental destruction and social dislocation if it all, produces an un, uh, all it produces is unbearable pain? Should this question not burn the lips of everyone in public life? Since this does not require a policy response, it requires something much bigger. The reappraisal of an entire worldview. Of all the fantasies human beings entertain, the idea that we can go it alone is the most absurd and perhaps the most dangerous. We stand together or we fall apart. So it's in a very interesting article, and it's amazing to see this secular, atheistic journalist unknowingly agreeing with the Bible. Uh, agreeing that something is dramatically wrong, and it's not just something that's going to be fixed with the passing of, of a political bill. 
Uh, it's something that requires a complete overhaul of our worldview, of our ideology, of the way that we look at and interpret the world around us. Uh, and he realizes that modern secular ideology, uh, which is the driving force behind the, the culture of the United States and of Europe, is having a devastating effect upon uh, those who build their lives upon it. Now, that's your worldview. What truths are you building upon? And while he makes an accurate diagnosis that there is a problem, and while he identifies some of the symptoms, he doesn't get to really what the disease is. It's easy to say, oh, this is, this, this is what's going wrong, but if you're only dealing with the symptoms, if you're only dealing with the, the, the rash on the skin, but not the, the real issue that's going on internally, you never have a hope of bringing the right remedy and cure. And that's exactly what happens. He, he, he makes a correct diagnosis, but not deep enough of the disease. And then he doesn't give the right prescription for healing and recovery elsewhere. He, he has this... Uh, I almost said ministry, but it's not a ministry, uh, of this, uh, this program where he goes and sings songs and you know, goes and meets at a pub, and you're like, that's how he wants to deal with this problem. And you're like, that's not the solution. Uh, and, and so while the, these issues of modern culture uh, that we face, they, they are a direct result of, of our secular ideology uh, and the worldview that has been embraced, but on a, on a deeper and more profound level, the dysfunction that we see within society and within individuals isn't just because of that worldview. It's because of sin. It's because of what uh, is going on in us that leads us to build and create that worldview. Uh, and the only hope that we have, the only prescription that there is for sin is Christ. Uh, it, it's not ourselves. Uh, it's not uh, political change. It's not just changing our worldview. It is Jesus Christ. It's a person. He also said that we crave social interaction because we are, quote, human beings, the ultra-social mammals whose brains are wired to respond to other people. And that's, that's partly true. See, we are human beings, but we are created in the image of a triune God. There is a relationship within the Godhead, and we are created in God's image. Therefore, we were created for relationship with God and with one another. Uh, listen to these verses, or uh, this verse from Genesis 2. Speaking of the sixth day, God says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. See, at the end of day six, God says everything was was good. It was very good, in fact. But in the middle of day six, when man is by himself, he says, this isn't good. And he needs, he needs a companion. He needs somebody to be with him. And I'm going to create Eve to be with Adam. So, uh, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, says this. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fail, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has, no, uh, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but, one, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a, might, a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And what we need to see and what we will see today is that Christianity is fundamentally about how human beings can be in right relationship with the Holy God who created him and how human beings can be in right relationship with one another. Our society is saying uh, you should do all of this by yourself. We promote individualism to such an extent that we isolate ourselves and yet Christianity is saying no, that's, that's why you're going off the deep end, society. Uh, and this is how we are to call ourselves back. One pastor uh, said that uh, the key to the quality of our earthly fellowship is the quality of our fellowship with God. And those with the richest fellowship with God have the richest fellowship with each other. If you want to be in right relationship with others, you first have to be in right relationship with your Creator. Uh, and we have a fellowship with God through His Son. Uh, and... Uh, even though we have that fellowship with Christ, it can be difficult to have fellowship with other believers and with others. Am I right? It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily uh, to build relationships with others. And sometimes, even though we have fellowship with God, we can, we can feel alone. 
We can feel alone in the world, and dare I would even say that we can feel alone in the church. Albert Schweitzer says that we are all so much together, but we are all dying of loneliness. So how do, how do we deal with this loneliness that is uh, seen by the world as an epidemic when you have a secular journalist saying, hey, we have to fix this, and it's not just uh, some little tweaks that we need to do. We need to go back to formula. We need to reassess everything that we believe and fundamentally change our worldview because this loneliness, this isolation that we have is destroying society. And what we will see in the, in the book of Colossians today in chapter 4 Paul is going to, to address, and when we, when we zoom out and look at Colossians of what we've already seen, we see that Paul is addressing relationships throughout the book of Colossians. Uh, in Colossians 1, he is telling us who our creator is. It's Jesus Christ. Uh, that he is the one who has created everything and is sustaining everything. Look at Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. Because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the God that we are to have relationship with. Uh, and he, has, he is the one who has saved us. That's what Paul outlined in Colossians 2. Jesus is the one who has created us, the one who has saved us and removed our guilt, bearing our sins on the cross, and the one that we are saved by. And Paul established that. And then what does he do in Colossians chapter 3? Now that you have right relationship with God, this is how you rightly relate to one another. This is what God is now calling us to. You look at Colossians chapter 3, it shifts from what God has done for us in Christ, and this is now how we need to respond, how we interact with one another. We see that from uh, chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 5 and, and onward. Uh, and uh, at the, the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, he's going to get really specific. He goes from the, the general, here's how you need to act with everybody, then how you need to act within the church. There's, here's how you, your individual relationships within the Christian household, how you are to interact with one another. He speaks of husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and slaves. And then we get to Colossians 4 where we come this morning. And now, after, after Paul has taught all of this, now we get to really see what his relationships are like. Say, so, Paul, you've talked a good talk, but what are your relationships genuinely like? And it's amazing how many people he's going to list here. People that he's, he may not have even uh, met, that he knows of in churches, and then the people that he uh, is ministering with there in Rome and who he's going to be sending around to do ministry on his behalf. The last time we were in Colossians several weeks ago, prior to, to our celebration of Resurrection Sunday, we looked at chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Uh, and this morning, what I would like to look at is verses 10 through uh, 10 and 11, but we're going to read 10 through 14, because what Paul is going to do, 7 through 9, he introduced it to the two men who are carrying these, this letter uh, of Colossians to the church. And now he's going to introduce us to, to men who have given him comfort while he was in prison. Uh, he's going to introduce us to some of his fellow workers. Read with me, beginning, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. 
Paul is going to introduce us to his companions, but we're just going to look at verses 10 and 11 and, and these three men that he identifies. And, and uh, I want to draw your attention to that last statement in verse 11, because that's really where the emphasis is in these two verses. He says, and they have been a comfort to me. Paul introduces us to these men and, and he makes a, a special emphasis on, on the impact that they have had on his life. And again, think of what Paul's circumstances are. He is in Rome under house arrest, in, in prison, so to speak. And he has been there for at least one year, possibly all the way up to two years in, his, in Rome. And that's after being imprisoned in the land of Israel for four years prior to that. And now, is prison a lonely place, or is there an abundance of fellowship when you're in prison? No. You've been in prison five years, you can, you can be lonely, and that's what is amazing, of thinking of Paul's circumstances, and then saying that, that he has been comforted by these men, and he was in need of comfort. He, he's been wrongfully accused, uh, been on trial multiple times, and each time he's on trial, they say, well, this guy hasn't done anything wrong, and yet he's still in prison. So he finally appeals to Caesar, says, hey, I want to go stand before Caesar. And so he travels to Rome, and that's where he is writing now. Uh, and what we need to understand in this, in this concept of, of comfort, Second uh, Corinthians uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 in chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what Paul is saying, and what we need to understand as we talk about comfort today, of God is the one who comforts us, and he comforts us for a reason, so that we would be comforted, and that we would turn around and do what with our comfort? That we would pass it on, that we would give comfort to others in the same way that we have been comforted. Uh, and that he is able to comfort us in every distress, in every affliction, and this morning, what we're going to look at is the value of companionship and bringing comfort to our souls. Uh, this, this idea of loneliness is addressed in Scripture. And we see how the God of all comfort uses other Christians to encourage us. And to follow Him, to trust in Him, and to walk in faith towards Christ together. Uh, and so what I'd like to do this morning is look at who these three men were and then kind of save our application to the end of what do we learn from these three men. So let's, let's briefly look at these three men of Jesus uh, slash Justice, uh, Aristarchus, and then Mark. We'll look at them at an increasing order of what we know about them. Uh, but let's begin with uh, the one that we know the least about. We know each of these men is, uh, is of Jewish descent because Paul says... They are of the, the circumcision, and they are the only ones of his fellow workers. These were the only Jews that had left Judaism to, to partner with him and, and go about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God with him. Uh, and uh, so this first man, uh, you can say a great man, a man of great mystery, uh, Jesus. And we don't know much about him because this is the only place he's mentioned in Scripture. Uh, he has a popular name, which would be the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Uh, Jesus and Joshua are really the same name. Uh, and, and Justice could either be his last name or his surname, or it could be a nickname. Uh, and the, uh, it's, a, it's a Latin version of the idea of the, the one who is just or the one who is righteous. And it could come from another Hebrew word meaning righteous. But uh, what we do know is this, that Paul uh, ministered alongside him in Rome. He was a companion of Paul and he worked to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, and he was meaning that he was somebody who faithfully proclaimed the gospel message. Uh, and here's here's a little bit of speculation I guess just on my part. His his Latin name of of Justice and being a, a Jew, hey, he could be uh, somebody that Paul met in Rome or who was there a part of the church in Rome. Uh, he was a uh, a Roman Jew, so to speak, and uh, maybe he came to faith under Paul's ministry in Rome. We don't know. Uh, but what we do know for sure is that this was somebody who served faithfully with Paul. And again, what was Paul's evaluation? This was one of the men who had brought him comfort. Uh, and what's amazing is that we see that as Justice was ministering alongside Paul, 
And he's ministering with Paul, but he also ends up ministering to Paul. And that as, uh, as we minister alongside others, we can often be an encouragement to them. We can bring them comfort. Uh, and that's what happened with the Apostle Paul. This, this other believer who's working alongside him ends up being an encouragement to him. And, and that's the mark that true fellowship makes upon our souls. Uh, that even if it's just for, for a little while, even just for a moment, true fellowship and camaraderie in Christ brings an encouragement and a comfort that nothing else can bring in this life. Uh, in his book, uh, Turtle on a Fence Post, uh, Christian businessman Alan Emery recalls an occasion when he's at the 30th Street uh, station in Philadelphia. And amid the rush of people, he heard this conductor whistling uh, a Christian hymn. And immediately he went up to him, uh, greeted him in the Lord, had a brief exchange, uh, and that little moment of time, that brief encouragement that he had with this other Christian that he had never before met and never saw again, that, that experience stuck with him, that fellowship that they shared, because they could immediately come and have something in common, was of great encouragement to him, and he, enough to record this down at the end of his life, of this little story, of this, this brief encounter. And, that, and again, we see what true fellowship does. It brings comfort to our souls, even if for a brief time. Uh, and we don't know much about uh, this man of Jesus, who was called Justice, but we know he was uh, of an, an encouragement and a comfort to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and the second man that we see is, is a man of great loyalty. We know a little bit more about this, this guy, Aristarchus. Uh, we know he was a, a Macedonian Jew from Thessalonica. If you, if you turn with me over to uh, the book of Acts, we'll, we'll kind of be jumping around here. Uh, and uh, again, we're not sure, we don't know all of the details about Aristarchus, but we, uh, we know that he's from Thessalonica, and it's possible that he came to Christ under Paul's ministry when he came to Thessalonica. Look with me, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we don't know if, if Aristarchus was one of those Jews that came to know Christ at that point in time. Uh, we're not sure, but where he is first mentioned, uh, and what we know for certain, is that he was with Paul on his third missionary journey. If you jump over to, to Acts chapter 19, and what we have is, is a riot at Ephesus. Uh, so Paul, uh, after going through uh, Macedonia, uh, as we just read on his second missionary journey, he goes uh, on his third missionary journey, he stops in Ephesus, and he's there in Ephesus for two years, ministering, sharing the gospel, and, and it's likely that the Colossian church was founded by somebody who was taught by Paul when he was in Ephesus, because Paul never went to Colossae. So while Paul is in Ephesus for two years there, uh, reasoning and teaching and discipling, and many people are coming to faith, uh, Aristarchus comes onto the scene, and when there is a riot in the city, an angry mob is formed by those who are idol makers in the city, uh, they say, hey, if, if Paul keeps preaching this gospel that gods that are made with hands are not gods, uh, we're going to be out of work. Uh, and so motivated for economic reasons, they try and get Paul kicked out of Ephesus. Uh, and look with me, chapter 19, verse 29. Or actually, just jump back to verse 28. And when they had heard this, they were enraged, speaking of the crowds, and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the, the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Uh, and so, what we again see in the next chapter, Acts 20, uh, is that, that Aristarchus continued with Paul back to Rome, and, or not Rome, to Jerusalem, uh, and was with him there when, he, when Paul was falsely accused and imprisoned, and was probably with Paul throughout his imprisonment in Caesarea. So here's a man who, who was with Paul on his third missionary journey and stuck it out with him. In Acts chapter 27, if you jump over there, we see that Paul... That Aristarchus made this journey with Paul to Rome. Look at me, Acts chapter 27, verse 2. And embarking in a ship of uh, Adram, 
medium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So it is possible, as we look at this verse, that there were only two men who accompanied Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, Luke and Aristarchus. And think about that. To, to stick with somebody for that long, right, who's been in prison, uh, falsely accused, all of these things. There's a, in our modern vernacular, we have a term, a fair-weather friend. Right? Somebody who, who's with you for a time, as long as things are going well, uh, as long as uh, everything is good in that relationship and they, you are some benefit to them, they're willing to stick it out with you. But at the first sign of trouble, what do they do? They bolt, say, I'm out of here. And what we see in Aristarchus is he was not a fair-weather friend. He stuck with Paul while Paul was in prison for years, and then he traveled with Paul to Rome. And understand that, uh, that a sea journey across the Mediterranean of that degree is dangerous. And what happened on the way? Shipwreck. Aristarchus and Luke are with Paul when he's shipwrecked in Acts chapter 27. Uh, and, and he still is with Paul when he's writing from Rome to the Colossians now. So no wonder Paul is saying, this is, this is a faithful man. Look at, look at everything that Aristarchus has endured with Paul. And, and it's amazing, thinking back to Colossians, you can stay here in Acts, but in that passage in Colossians, Paul says that he is my, my fellow prisoner. And the idea, he, words, he uses a specific word meaning a, a prisoner of war. He says, hey, this is a guy who's gone to battle with me and stuck by me through everything. This was a, a very loyal, loyal man who followed Paul and ministered alongside him for years. And early church tradition says that Aristarchus was martyred in Rome under the persecution of Emperor Nero. So here, here was a, a loyal man, a faithful man, and it's easy to see how Aristarchus could bring comfort to Paul, right? When you have that friend who, who sticks closer than a brother, that friend who's, who's with you through thick and thin, that is a great encouragement. But what's more confusing, or what's more amazing, is actually the, this third guy that I want to mention, and, and the person who, who Paul mentions uh, in, uh, in this section. He, he mentions a, a man named Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, if, uh, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. He, he says this, and, and Mark is actually one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And his story is so amazing and so encouraging to my own soul. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about him. Uh, you see, Mark would have probably been the first church kid. Uh, he, he was the one who probably grew up in, in the church because uh, at Mark's house was probably where the Last Supper took place. Uh, and he was there when, when they came in. He would have been there when, or maybe asleep when, when Jesus and his disciples left. But he would have been there uh, when a knock came at the door and a crowd with torches is looking for Jesus trying to arrest him. He says, he's not here. Uh, and so the, the, he, they, know, they realize where, if Judas says, hey, if he's not here, he's going to go to the garden. And the, the Gospel of Mark says Mark followed them, and all he had was a bedsheet because he was sleeping. Uh, so it's an interesting little story there. But, but Mark would have been there to see Jesus betrayed, arrested, and taken away. And he would have been an eyewitness to all of that. Uh, and then in the early church, it's likely that... Uh, the day of Pentecost, when the, when the, the tongues come upon uh, and the Spirit comes upon uh, the, the believers in Acts chapter 2, that might have been again at John Mark's house. So he's seeing all of these amazing things happening in his home. The church is, is coming up within his own, under his own roof. Uh, and he would have seen the miraculous growth of the church since it was meeting at his house. And think of it this way. When the early Christians are being stoned, and martyred, John Mark knows all of them. When Stephen's killed, he's like, hey, I, I, know, I know him. And he was martyred for his faith. John Mark would have remembered and known all of this. And so when Herod begins to persecute the church, if you turn with me over to, to Acts chapter 12, when Herod begins to persecute the church, this hits really at home for John Mark. And we see in, in verses 1 through 5, that Herod kills James, the brother of John. Killed, again, 
Mark knows him. He's been in Mark's house, I bet. And then, with James just being killed, Peter is arrested. So the whole church is greatly concerned for who? For Peter. Look with me in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he did, and he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter, now a free man, where does he go? Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And I always think, if you're Peter, you're like, what are you doing? Let me in. I'm a fugitive from the law. You've got to let me in. Uh, but it's just amazing. Yeah, the first place Peter goes and where he knows believers will be is John Mark's house. That, that's where he goes. And so during this whole time, John Mark is growing spiritually again, hearing the, the, the teaching of the apostles day in and day out. Uh, and then in, in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on a missionary journey, about 15 years had passed since Acts chapter 2 uh, and, the, and the formation of the church. 15 years had passed, so now Mark is probably uh, early 30s maybe. And... And he gets chosen and selected by these, these two apostles to go with them on this missionary journey. Right? What an honor. How exciting would this be? But look with me at, at Acts chapter 13, verse 13. They've made one stop in Cyprus, and now they're going to the next stop. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's, that's all that we're given. Right, Paul? Uh, that's, that's all that we know. John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and goes back to Jerusalem. And I'm like, Lord, I want more details. Why? Did he get a letter that his mom is sick? You know, is something going on? Or did he lose heart? And it becomes evident later on that he just lost heart because... He goes back to Jerusalem uh, and is there for uh, about two or three years. And then time has passed and, and, and John Mark has grown again. And, and if you jump over to, to Acts chapter 15, at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, because it's been a couple of years, they want to go back and visit those same churches that they went to on their first missionary journey. And they, they have a little bit of a debate between them. And I mean that very lightly by debate. Uh, what should we do with John Mark? That this guy who left us wants to come with us again. And read with me. Chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And, they arose, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So think about this. There, there was such a disagreement about how to... What do we do with this guy who left us? Do we restore him? Do we reconcile? Do we give him a second chance? To the, to the degree that Paul and Barnabas are like, this is like the number one missionary team of the early church, and they have to part ways. And I can't read, read that without having my heart break. 
of just seeing these, these two men who couldn't agree. And it's difficult. And just in my own uh, understanding, I think I side with Barnabas. Like, Paul, why are you unwilling to give him a chance? Why are you not willing to apply the gospel to him uh, who, who denied you? But that's, uh, that's another point of the apostles were inspired in their writings, not in their actions. And we also know that from, from Paul having to rebuke Peter later on uh, in Galatians 2. Uh, but, but something also amazing happened from this point in Acts chapter 15 to where we are in Colossians. Twelve years has passed, and when, we, when, we, when Paul left John Mark, he's like, I don't want to be with that guy. I'm not going to go minister with him. And then here in Colossians, what is he saying? This is a fellow worker who's brought me comfort. So that's a, a pretty amazing transformation in John Mark. And I think just in, in restoring John Mark, the Lord brought two, two guys to minister to him. Number one was Barnabas, who we find out in Colossians is his cousin. Uh, so family's pretty thick. Uh, but it, what's also amazing is Barnabas isn't his actual name. And some of you are like, what? His, his name is actually Joseph. And Barnabas is a nickname, Barney for short. Uh, and, and what that means is son of encouragement. Right? And, and who better to, to minister to somebody who is, who's fallen away and in fear turned back from Christ for a time than to have the guy nicknamed Son of Encouragement come alongside you and say, hey, come minister with me. That's that's the first man who who had a dramatic impact upon John Mark's life. And and the second would be Peter. Uh, And somehow or another, Peter and Mark get connected, and and it's possible that that John Mark went with Peter to Rome, and then uh, Peter left him behind to help oversee the church, and then Paul gets there and connects with Mark again. Uh, and, And again, Peter would have been very patient with Mark and understood Mark's fear. Why? Because Peter himself denied Christ three times on the night of his betrayal. Does Peter understand what it looks like to, to fall away uh, and, and to doubt and to respond in fear? Absolutely. And so these two men, Barnabas and Peter, coming alongside John Mark and are able to, to disciple him and, and see him restored to faith. And it's an amazing journey. Again, 12 years. It doesn't happen overnight. But now, to the degree that, that Paul is saying, hey, this, this young man, Mark, who's no longer a young man, but in his mid-40s, uh, I guess that's still young, right? Uh, he's saying, he has been a comfort to me. Uh, he has been an encouragement to me. And that's how, how Mark goes from, from failure to, to faithful. And I, and I love that, uh, just uh, of seeing John Mark's uh, return to following Christ. Uh, and later on in Second Timothy, uh, as as Paul's on his death deathbed, so to speak, of in prison, about to be executed, he writes and says that, "Hey, John Mark is very useful to me for ministry. Send him to me, Timothy. Send send me Mark." Uh, and so Mark would have been alive to know of both Paul and Peter's martyrdom. And then after Peter died, he wrote the Gospel of Mark based upon Peter's eyewitness account of the life of Christ. All four of the Gospels were written based upon eyewitness accounts. So these, these are these three men that Paul identifies. Uh, Justice, Aristarchus, and John Mark. So we have, I know that was kind of information overload of who these, who these men were. But now let, let's take a step back and say, what is it we are to learn from them? Now, what, what, do we, what do we take away from this? Why is Paul mentioning them here? And while there are, there are many things to take away, uh, and so he, here are some smaller things to take away just from the lives of those men. That's not the main point of this passage because Paul is making another point here, but some side notes would be that sin and conflict will occur within the church. If sin and disagreement take place between Paul and Barnabas, you can bet it's going to take place at some point here in our own congregation. It, it happens. Uh, uh, and it, it's, it's an ugly fact, but it's a true fact. Uh, when two godly men can have a disagreement. Again, I think, I think one was in the wrong there. Uh, but it, it happens. But God uses all things together for good. And what's amazing is even Mark fell away, uh, and they have a disagreement, but now instead of one missionary team, how many missionary teams are there? Two. With experienced missionaries. God uses all things together for good. He used Mark's uh, 
fear and failure to, to draw him near to him and to restore him. He used that in the life of, of Paul later on and Peter and Barnabas. Uh, God uses all things together for good. Sin and conflict will occur within the church. And then, reconciliation and restoration should always follow repentance. And if, when there is conflict, when there is repentance, what should also happen is, is restoration. Uh, and reconciliation. You see, uh, Paul had this, this point of departure with John Mark of, hey, I don't want to minister with him. But, but later on, he is restored and again welcomed by Paul. And Paul begins to understand what God is doing in the life of John Mark. So those, are, those are kind of some side notes of, hey, what do we see from those men? But here's the, the bigger takeaway from this passage of what, what the Apostle Paul, I think, is trying to communicate. And what we, what we see clearly is that, number one, Shared ministry is God's design for the church. As we read in Acts and as we look here in Colossians, Paul's never doing anything by himself. He always has somebody with him. He's always saying, hey, come with me on this. Come, come do this missionary journey. Come risk your life for Christ. Uh, let's go do this together. Uh, and, and he's always teaching, always training, always discipling. There's always somebody right there with him ministering alongside him. And that is God's design for the church, if you if you turn back uh, to Colossians, God's design for the church means that it's it's not just one person doing everything, but everybody is called to be ministering to one another, uh, and, th- and this is evident in almost every New Testament letter. But look with me at Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-eight. Paul's uh, mission statement in ministry says, "Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, uh, that we may present everyone mature in Christ." Right? So what is Paul doing? What is he committing himself to? Warning, teaching, admonishing. And who is he doing that to? Everybody. With the goal of presenting everybody to be mature. So this is what Paul has been doing in ministry. And then turn over to Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, What he himself was doing, he now calls the entire church to do. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, what Paul has dedicated himself to doing as an apostle, he now says, hey, I know you're not an apostle, but you need to be doing the exact same thing. It's a shared ministry of what, that's what God has intended in the church. It's not, uh, the church is not an organization with just a few people doing everything. It's an organism. It's living. It's breathing with every single one of its members uh, doing uh, the, the job and fulfilling the role that God has ordained for us to accomplish. Now that, that's why he uses over and over again the metaphor of a, of a body. That the body, you need all parts of your body. You need your hands, you need your feet, you need your mouth, your eyes, your nose, your ears. All of those things are necessary. And God desires for uh, shared ministry to be the paradigm for the church. Uh, and, and secondly, and this is the, the, the big point of the passage, and if you, if you take one thing away this morning, take this away, is that comfort is a natural result of true Christian fellowship. See, Paul was, was comforted by these men as he ministered alongside them and as he shared in a common faith in Jesus Christ. And if we, if we want to experience comfort in the same way, we have to figure out how, how do we do that? How, how does that happen? And here's what I would propose. Uh, of Paul was comforted because, again, true fellowship. And we, and we use that word fellowship a lot, right? And it can have a couple different meanings. But in, in Scripture, fellowship is different from friendship. Fellowship has the idea of sharing something in common. Of having something that you, uh, that you can build upon together. And so then if we have Christian fellowship, what is it that we share in common? Christ. A faith in Him as our Lord and Savior, the one who died and rose again for us. That, that is the fellowship that we share. First John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage others to fellowship with us because we are all in fellowship together with Jesus Christ. Uh, and... And so here's, here's a big thing that we need to, to understand and take away, that our Christian fellowship is not built upon a common interest in worldly things. 
right? It's really easy to, to make friends and, and build relationships uh, because you have common interests with somebody else, a shared affection. Uh, and true Christian fellowship is not built upon rooting for the same sports teams or, or being uh, you know, somebody who enjoys the, the same types of movies or the same hobbies or you're in the same uh, station in life or in a similar uh, place in life. Our, our common ground as a church is Christ. That, that's, that's who we share and true Christian fellowship can only be built upon that common faith, not upon anything else. When it's, when it's built upon something else, it's superficial. And honestly, that's how, that's how small groups or cliques can form within a church. When you only hang with people who are exactly like you. And the, that aspect of would you be friends outside of church. So is church really what unites you? Or is it you, you know, rooting for the, the same sports team or anything else? Anything else that you enjoy doing? Some hobby? Of what truly grounds true fellowship is unity in Christ. And friendship and companionship can be a byproduct of fellowship. But fellowship is not always the byproduct of friendship. Hey, you can, uh, and the reason that is is because one is greater and deeper and more intimate than the other. You can be friends with somebody for a long time and not really know who they are. Right? You can uh, you can not really know who they are because sometimes all we talk about is the news, the weather, and sports. Did you see that game last night? Did you see the news? What about the weather? That storm's coming in, or the sun is shining. That's the easiest thing to talk about. That's non-threatening, right? But that's not true fellowship. And if those are the only things that we talk about, will we ever have true fellowship? No. True fellowship is life-changing because you will know others and you will be known by others. And true fellowship will result in what we see here. Comfort and encouragement. And that is what Christ is drawing us to. I, I saw this uh, on Twitter the other day and it just it cracked me up. Of, it says, nobody talks about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in his mid-30s. Right? Uh, that's a miracle. How many of us have, you know, can, can have that? And in the world, that's, that's an anomaly. Right? Of just having genuine relationship with other, other people. Uh, and and that's, it's so important because what, what Christ is calling us to, what Paul is calling us to, and what we see lived out in Paul is that when we have true fellowship, when true fellowship exists, loneliness doesn't. It, it's not there. When we truly have a relationship built and founded upon Christ, we will know others and be known by others and be comforted and be encouraged because we're not just talking about news, weather, and sports. We're not just talking about temporary earthly matters. We're talking about things that pertain to eternity. Things that really, really matter in this life and the next. And that we are Ambassador Bible Fellowship uh, because we long to... Uh, to have fellowship that is built upon. We, we long to have a shared common interest in the Word of God and the Word made flesh. Jesus Christ and the Bible. That, that is what we want to have be our common ground. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have friendships. That doesn't mean that we don't have relationships. But what it means is that our common shared uh, interest is Christ. Uh, and... And as we come together, as we talk about fellowship, as we talk about comfort, uh, it's one thing to, to come together to study God's word and see, wow, we can be comforted by one another and the, and the instruments that God uses to comfort us are other people, other Christians. But when we gather together on Sunday mornings, can we really do that? It's, it's difficult at times. And it's easy to be lost in the crowd on Sunday mornings, which is, again, why we do uh, smaller groups during the week. We call them growth groups, uh, groups that we are intended to, to come together uh, and to foster these types of relationships where you can know and be known, where we can look at God's word together, where we can pray with one another and for one another, where we can bear one another's burdens, where we can fulfill all of the New Testament one another commands that we can't fulfill on a Sunday morning meeting. And that's where we can truly experience fellowship with one another. Uh, and, and so if, if we're here, here this morning, some of, you, some of you might be feeling lonely. You might be looking and longing for comfort. And I want to tell you today that you can experience comfort. You can, you can leave that loneliness. But to do so, you must understand that true fellowship and the comfort that comes with it begins with our fellowship with 
Jesus Christ. Again, pointing back to, to 1 John 1.3, he says, we have fellowship in, because we fellowship with God the Father. And we have to understand that, that the church is not your hope. And I, know it's, I don't want to send a conflicting message. This church, we can be your companions, but we aren't your hope. Individual Christians aren't your hope, and the church isn't your hope. Our hope is in Christ. And as we follow Christ, the byproduct of that is we, we naturally, as we obey him, as we, as we strive to walk in faith and live out the, his commands, we naturally begin to develop relationships with others. And with that companionship comes the comfort that we see. But we have to first and foremost pursue him. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Sounds a lot like what that secular atheist journalist said earlier, right? But C.S. Lewis continues, he says, But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Companionship and true fellowship, comfort comes from knowing Christ and then being related and connecting with his people. That's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. That's what he commands in this letter to the Colossians, and that's what we see modeled in the life of Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you, praising you that you are a God who desires to have relationship with us. Lord, that you long to know us and to be known by us. Lord, thank you for communicating to us in your word, and thank you for communicating to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we long to know him, we long to be like him, and Lord, we long to know others. We long to have companionship and fellowship uh, that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we long to live that out, and I pray that you would help us to do that to open ourselves up, to to minister alongside one another and to, to one another, that we might glorify you and build up your entire church uh, as we pursue Christ together. May we be built up in unity and love as each one of us uses our gifts for your glory, honor, and praise.